Welcome to the Wayside Podcast. I'm Robert Killingsworth. The audio for this episode comes from a sermon that was given during one of our Sunday services. We hope you are encouraged and inspired by today's word. Before I begin, I want to address one thing, which is if you were here about three and a half, four months ago, this may have seemed like deja vu to you because we had a sermon on this exact same passage, but our friend Jim Jackson preached. I am not Jim Jackson. Um, He was fantastic. I don't even pretend to have the insight that he does. So I decided I was going to approach this from a slightly different angle than he did. You can see that sermon in our archives uh, online. But if, if you start to worry, if, it, if I'm talking for like 45 minutes and you think, he hasn't talked about the limp yet, this thing is going to take forever. Um, I'm not really going to talk about the limp very much because Jim did such a wonderful job with that. I think our takes are, are harmonious with one another. But just in case you're worried, man, I've already sat through this sermon. Um, you haven't. This is new, so I just wanted to address that before we start. Let me lead us in prayer uh, as we look at this passage from Genesis. Holy Lord, there is no one like you. There is none beside you. We ask that you would open up our hearts in wonder this morning to hear from your word, to see what you would have us to see from the scriptures. Pray that you would cleanse my lips, that I would fitly proclaim your holy gospel. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, this past week has been quite an eventful one for me personally. So on Monday afternoon, I went out and I leased a new car. I'm not going to tell you very much about it, but it is a convertible. It is red and it is fast. It's great. And so once I had that new car, I decided, you know what, I... I really need a new wardrobe because it's getting hot in Houston and I needed something to take me between home and the tanning salon and the gym. And so they have these shirts and they don't have sleeves on purpose. And they're really good because it gets the air flowing and and you just look really cool in these shirts. And then I met the most delightful young lady. Her name is Inga. And later on this coming week, we're going to go out and celebrate that she's going to be finally old enough to rent a car. So it was a great week. Um, Those are all lies. None of that's true. There is no Inga. Um, I do have sleeves. uh, And I still drive my amazing Toyota. Um, But what was I describing? What what were you thinking as I was describing those things? What was I talking about? It was a midlife crisis, right? (laughs) Midlife crises are not a new phenomenon. They don't just involve sports cars and tanning beds. Through the centuries, countless men and women have reached a point in their life where they ask, is is this all there really is? Or they realize some disappointment with how their life has turned out. Again, like I said, they are not new. 700 years ago, the poet Dante began his divine comedy, Dante's Inferno, if you've heard of it. He began it like this. Midway upon the journey of our life, I found myself in a dark wilderness for I had wandered from the straight and true. How hard a thing it is to tell about, that wilderness so savage, dense, and harsh, even to think of it renews my fear. One of the reasons why it can be incredibly lonely to be a young person is because that one of the things that young people are told is that all of history has been leading up to you. 
you are the culmination of everything that has happened before, which I suppose in some sense is true, right? We, we don't know what's going to happen in the future. But this leads to a kind of narcissism, a kind of love of yourself, where you think, if I'm the culmination of all things, no one else could have ever experienced what I experience. And that can be really lonely. You're told by your peers and by culture at large that no one can possibly understand you. Well, there's some good news, and that is you are not alone in that. Others have lived the exact same life with the same doubts, the same questions, the same fears that you have, and you are not alone. You are not the first person to have a crisis, and you will not be the last. In our reading this morning, Jacob comes to his midlife crisis at the ford of the Jabbok River. Jacob doesn't get a flashy new camel. He doesn't rip the sleeves off of his tunic, but his crisis is a crisis nonetheless. So we're in, if you've just joined us, we're in week three of our four-week series on the life and legacy of Jacob. And this week, we're moving from perseverance to being transformed. And so I'm going to tell a little bit of the story just in case you're catching up with us, just so we can set the stage for what we just heard from Genesis 32. So at the beginning of Jacob's story, it actually starts before he's born. So Abraham's son Isaac and his wife Rebekah have a hard time conceiving. And they pray and God answers their prayer and they conceive twin boys. And isn't it interesting that you can tell something about someone's personality or their character from the time they're a very small baby and sometimes from even before that. See, with Jacob and his brother Esau, even when they were in the womb, they were fighting and wrestling with one another. When the boys were born, the first one came out red and hairy, and so they named him Esau, which means red and hairy. (laughs) You know how sometimes there are these names that they start out as like boy names, and then over time they kind of shift into more feminine names? I'm not talking about anybody in here. I'm talking about names like Meredith, right? That used to be a boy's name. My great-grandfather was named Vivian, Lindsay, Ashley. So I don't think Esau is going to be making that transition into a girl's name. I just can't imagine a mother saying, oh, look at this little one. She's red and hairy. This is going to be great. (laughs) So Esau comes out first. And then they notice as Esau is born that there's this little hand on his heel and the second baby comes out. And so they name the second baby Jacob. And Jacob means grasper or grabber. As one of my professors put it, they really named him Jake the Gripper. That's what he was doing. So Jacob and Esau, they fought in the womb and they fought out in the world. So in that day, the firstborn received the lion's share of the inheritance and the blessings from the family. But Jacob, the younger son, he desperately, desperately wanted the blessings. So he connived ways to grab what wasn't his. He manipulated Esau out of his birthright. Jacob bought the birthright from him for a bowl of stew. And let's be fair here. If someone is willing to sell their birthright for a bowl of stew, they probably don't deserve it, right? Esau is not the most shining example of character that we see in Genesis. But then, even after that, Jacob and his mother worked together to trick his old blind father to get the blessing that was due to Esau. So Esau, he was upset. That's putting it lightly. Uh, We could say Esau was filled with murderous rage, And so Jacob decided, you know, now is probably a pretty good time to get out of town. And so he did. He left his home and his family, 
and he set out for his uncle's place to the northeast. But just as he was about to cross the border, leaving the promised land, Jacob has a vision. He has this vision of angels ascending up to heaven and then descending down to earth. And he hears, for the first time, he hears the voice of the Lord. And the Lord told him that the blessings that were promised to his grandfather Abraham and his father Isaac were going to come through him and through his family. Blessings of abundance and life, and that the entire world would be blessed through his family line. His descendants would be as innumerable as grains of sand on the shore. So the next morning, he wakes up and he dedicates that spot as a holy place. And then he crossed the border and he continued on to his uncle's ranch, his uncle Laban. While he was there, quite a bit happened. He fell in love, and there's no one so gullible as a young man in love. His uncle Laban decided to use Jacob's affection to his advantage. He figured out how to get 14 years of hard labor out of Jacob. You might say that he was like the predatory student lender of the ancient world. So Jacob, the trickster, gets tricked. But even despite the setback, the Lord blesses him. By the time he leaves Laban's ranch, 20 years after he arrived, he has herds, and he has herdsmen, and children, and wives, and he headed back towards the promised land. He heads back toward his brother. Hopefully, you're asking the same question that I asked when I came to this this week. Why in the world is he heading back toward his brother? Right? Of all the places in the world to go, why not find some other land to settle in? Right? Some land with considerably fewer red and hairy guys who want to do him harm. Why not go somewhere else? Well, it's because despite all of the many flaws in his character, Jacob wanted what God promised. That's the best thing that we see about Jacob. Jacob wanted what God promised. Esau didn't care about his birthright, but Jacob went after it desperately. He connived, he tricked, he grasped, but the thing he wanted was a good thing. He knew that the land of blessing, the land that God had promised, was where he was supposed to be. And I find that helpful because sometimes we can feel guilty because we've pursued something in a sinful way and it causes us to swear off the object that we were pursuing, even if that was a good thing. Let me give you an example. It is okay to want to make a lot of money. That is an okay thing. Now, the reasons why you do that and the ways how you do that could lead to sin, right? It's not okay to want to earn a lot of money by preying upon the poor or preying on those who are bad at math by opening up one of those predatory payday loan shops or tricking people or being dishonest or treating your employees poorly or wanting just to impress other people with how opulent you are. Paul writes to Timothy that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. But there are plenty of good reasons, right, to want to earn a lot of money a desire to achieve, to be able to bless your family, to be able to bless others in your community, to support the church here and around the world. Those are great reasons to earn a truly ridiculous amount of money. Jacob is right to want the blessing. Despite everything, including all of his character flaws, he heads back to the promised land because that's where God told him to go. So we come to Genesis 32. And at the beginning of Genesis 32, Jacob and his caravan have arrived at the border, the boundary between where he has been and where he's supposed to be. 
And so he sends messengers on ahead to Esau. He wants Esau to know that he's back. And the messengers return to Jacob and they tell him, Esau's coming. And he's bringing 400 men with him. Right? So Esau is coming with his posse. And as always, at least when he's not blinded by puppy love, Jacob is quick on his feet and he comes up with a plan. He divides up his traveling party into two groups, two camps. And this is terrifying. Thinking that if there are two camps, when Esau and his men attack one, at least half of his relatives will survive. Right? That's, that's terrifying. That's really dark. This is Jacob's moment of crisis. You may be in your own moment of crisis today. It may not be a midlife crisis. A decade ago, psychologists began talking about what they called the quarter-life crisis. That feeling of unease that happens for young people when they finally finish school and join the working world. They discovered that what they were rewarded for in school is not what they're rewarded for in the real world. They go from the head of the class to the bottom of the totem pole and entry-level jobs, and they have a hard time adjusting. And things feel broken in the world for them. And that's real. Others have the classic midlife crisis, the sense of the loss of youth, the constraint of responsibilities, the questions of what if your body isn't as reliable as it used to be, your youth has faded. You could be in a place where you're suffering because of sins that you've committed or mistakes that you've made. You could be suffering because of no fault of your own, because of sins that other people have committed against you. Wherever you are in that, you are not the first person to feel that way or to experience this. You're not the only one here who doesn't have things figured out. Abraham had a promise from God to have innumerable descendants, and yet for most of his life, his closest heir was some guy named Eliezer of Damascus. David was anointed king when he was only the youngest son of a shepherding family. Hannah prayed for years for a child. Simeon waited in faith until he was older than dirt to see God's promised king. And Jacob, Jacob faced the retribution of a brother whom he had wronged years before. Plenty of time for that anger to fester. And it's at this point in Jacob's story when something new happens. Something happens for the first time in the book of Genesis. So for the first time, 32 chapters in, we see an extended prayer of a person to the Lord. Listen to what Jacob says in his prayer. Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant." I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two camps. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me, and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. Jacob grabs on to God's promise, and he won't let go. What promise are you grabbing hold of? You may have been hurt before by someone who didn't keep their promises. Perhaps it was a mom or a dad who hit their own midlife crisis and forgot about you, or worse. Perhaps it was an employer who lied about how healthy your company was and you ended up losing your job. 
right? Enron is not just a footnote to the name of the Astro Stadium. If you've been burned, it can be hard to trust people. It can be hard to latch on to any promises. But let me give you one that you can hold on to. Jesus says to you, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. The Apostle Paul begins his letter to the Philippians with one of my favorite passages in the Bible. He reminds them that the same God who began his good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion. Those are promises that you can grab hold of. So after he prays, Jacob comes up with a plan. He sends over 500 livestock to Esau as a peace offering. I counted, I think it was something like 550 animals plus some young camels to try to assuage uh, his brother. So while the gifts are sent on ahead, Jacob begins sending his people over the border into the promised land. He sends over the two camps and all the livestock and possessions. And he himself, Jacob, is going to bring up the rear. He's hesitating. He knows that the last time he was in the land, he sinned against his brother and his father, and he waits as long as possible to re-enter. I imagine Jacob standing by the river, looking into the last beams of the sunset as the final members of his caravan make it to the shore on the opposite bank. The air is still warm, and the scent of the animals lingers. Jacob stands for a moment in silence all by himself, just as he was two decades prior, before he left the promised land, but with nothing but a stick. He takes one final deep breath before he too will cross the river into the promised land. And then, then he sees the silhouette of a man who seems to have come out of nowhere. It's like this man is the border guard determining who can and who can't cross. And the man begins wrestling with Jacob. This is grappling, like in the Olympics, not like WWE with people hitting each other with folding chairs. This is all night grappling with one another. Finally, when the first light of dawn arises in the east, the man touches Jacob's hip socket and he wounds him. He says, let me go. Jacob says, not until I have your blessing. And so the man asks him, what is your name? What is his name? Well, this is a moment of shame for Jacob. Because remember, in the Old Testament, names mean something, right? Esau meant red and hairy. Jacob was Jake the Gripper. He has to come face to face. He has to say his name and come face to face with who he is or who he has been and what he's done. And so he says, Grabber, my name is Jacob. And the man looks at him and he says, Not anymore. You're not the grabber anymore. You're the grappler. You're the wrestler. Your name will be Israel because you struggled with God and man and you've overcome. And Jacob names that place Peniel, which means face of God. And he says, I saw God face to face and yet I live. And so Jacob limps across the river. Here's my main point this morning. If you want to enter the promised land, God's got to put his name on you. Jacob wasn't the only person in the Bible to marvel that he saw God and yet lived. Today is Transfiguration Sunday, and it's when we commemorate when Jesus went up onto a mountain with his disciples, and then to their amazement, he began shining like the sun. 
it wasn't so much that he just kind of started shining. It was more like in that, in that place, in that thin place between heaven and earth, some of the glory that he already possessed began to shine through so the disciples could see the face of God with them. And the voice of God rang out upon the mountain. This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. They could have renamed that mountain Mount Peniel because they saw the face of God in our Lord Jesus Christ and yet they lived. And that's what we have at this table behind me. We meet with our Lord. We experience communion with him through bread and wine and are spiritually nourished by his presence with us. If you want to enter the promised land, God's got to put his name on you. Sometimes names can tell you a lot about a person. Red and hairy, grabber, wrestler. But you have a name put on you as well. At your baptism, the sign of God's covenant was placed upon you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And so your name is child of God. So let that name transform you. Because if you want to enter the promised land, God's got to put his name on you. Thanks be to God. Thanks for listening. The Wayside Podcast is a ministry of St. Martin's Episcopal Church in Houston, Texas. It was created by Ryan Presley and the Reverend Wesley Arning. It is executive produced by Robert Killingsworth. The theme music was written and recorded by Robert Killingsworth. If you're interested in life at St. Martin's, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at St. Martin's Episcopal Church.